Section two of the Rough Riders by Theodore Roosevelt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Peck. Chapter one, part two, raising the regiment. All Easterners and Westerners, Northerners and Southerners, officers and men, cowboys and college graduates, wherever they came from and whatever their social position, possessed in common the traits of hardihood and a thirst for adventure they were to a man born adventurers in the old sense of the word the men in the ranks were mostly young yet some were past their first youth these had taken part in the killing of the great buffalo herds and had fought indians when the tribes were still on the warpath the younger ones too had led rough lives and the lines in their faces told of many a hardship endured and many a danger silently faced with grim unconscious philosophy some were originally from the east and had seen strange adventures in different kinds of life from sailing around the horn to mining in alaska others had been born and bred in the west and had never seen a larger town than santa fe or a bigger body of water than the pecos in flood some of them went by their own name some had changed their names and yet others possessed but half a name colored by some adjective like cherokee bill happy jack of arizona smoky moore the bronco buster so named because cowboys often call vicious horses smoky horses and rattlesnake pete who had lived among the moki and taken part in the snake dances some were professional gamblers and on the other hand no less than four were or had been baptist or methodist clergymen and prove first-class fighters too by the way some were men whose lives in the past had not been free from the taint of those fierce kinds of crime into which the lawless spirits who dwell on the borderland between civilization and savagery so readily drift a far larger number had served at different times in those bodies of armed men with which the growing civilization of the border finally puts down its savagery there was one characteristic and distinctive contingent which could have appeared only in such a regiment as ours from the indian territory there came a number of indians cherokees chickasaws choctaws and creeks only a few were of pure blood the others shaded off until they were absolutely indistinguishable from their white comrades with whom it may be mentioned they all lived on terms of complete equality not all the indians were from the indian territory one of the gamest fighters and best soldiers in the regiment was Pollock, a full-blooded Pawnee. He had been educated, like most of the other Indians, at one of those admirable Indian schools, which had added so much to the total of the small credit account with which the white race balances the very unpleasant debit account of its dealings with the red. Pollock was a silent, solitary fellow, an excellent penman, much given to drawing pictures. When we got down to Santiago, he developed into the regimental clerk, I never suspected him of having a sense of humor until one day, at the end of our stay in Cuba, as he was sitting in the adjutant's tent working over the returns, there turned up a trooper of the first, who had been acting as barber. Eyeing him with immovable face, Pollock asked, in a guttural voice, Do you cut hair? The man answered, Yes. And Pollock continued, Then you better cut mine, muttering in an explanatory soliloquy, don't want to wear my hair long like a wild indian when i'm in civilized warfare another indian came from texas he was a brakeman on the southern pacific and wrote telling me he was an american indian 
and that he wanted to enlist. His name was Colbert, which at once attracted my attention, for I was familiar with the history of the Cherokees and Chickasaws during the 18th century, when they lived east of the Mississippi. Early in that century, various traders, chiefly Scotchmen, settled among them, and the half-breed descendants of one named Colbert became the most noted chiefs of the Chickasaws. I summoned the applicant before me, and found that he was an excellent man, and, as I had supposed, a descendant of the old Chickasaw chiefs. He brought into the regiment, by the way, his partner, a white man. The two had been inseparable companions for some years, and continued so in the regiment. Every man who has lived in the West knows that, vindictive though, the hatred between the white man and the Indian is when they stand against one another in what may be called their tribal relations. Yet that men of Indian blood, when adopted into white communities, are usually treated precisely like anyone else. Colbert was not the only Indian whose name I recognized. There was a Cherokee named Adair, who, upon inquiry, I found to be descended from the man who, a century and a half ago, wrote a ponderous folio, to this day of great interest about the Cherokees, with whom he had spent the best years of his life as a trader and agent. I don't know that I ever came across a man with a really sweeter nature than another Cherokee named Holderman. He was an excellent soldier, and for a long time acted as a cook for the headquarters mess. He was a half-breed, and came of a soldier's stock on both sides and through both races. He explained to me once why he had come to the war, that it was because his people always had fought when there was a war, and he could not feel happy to stay at home when the flag was going into battle. Two of the young Cherokee recruits came to me with a most kindly letter from one of the ladies who had been teaching in the academy from which they were about to graduate. She and I had known one another in connection with governmental and philanthropic work on the reservations, and she wrote to commend the two boys to my attention. One was on the academy football team and the other in the glee club. Both were fine young fellows. The football player now lies buried with the other dead who fell in the fight at San Juan. The singer was brought to death's door by fever, but recovered and came back to his home. There were other Indians of much wilder type, but their wildness was precisely like that of the cowboys with whom they were associated. One or two of them needed rough discipline, and they got it, too. Like the rest of the regiment, they were splendid riders. I remember one man whose character left much to be desired in some respects, but whose horsemanship was unexceptional. He was mounted on an exceedingly bad bronco, which would bolt out of the ranks at drill. He broke it of this habit by the simple expedient of giving it two tremendous twists, first to one side and then to the other, as it bolted, with the result that, invariably, at the second bound, its legs crossed and over it went with a smash the rider taking the somersault with unmoved equanimity. The life histories of some of the men who joined our regiment would make many volumes a thrilling adventure. We drew a great many recruits from Texas, and from nowhere did we get a higher average where many of them had served in that famous body of frontier fighters, the Texas Rangers. Of course, these Rangers needed no teaching. They were already trained to obey and to take responsibility. They were splendid shots, horsemen, and trailers. They were accustomed to living in the open, to enduring great fatigue and hardship, and to encountering all kinds of danger. Many of the Arizona and New Mexico men had taken part in warfare with the Apaches, 
those terrible Indians of the waterless southwestern mountains, the most bloodthirsty and wildest of all the red men of America, and the most formidable in their own dreadful style of warfare. Of course, a man who had kept his nerve and held his own year after year, while living where each day and night contained the threat of hidden death from a foe whose goings and comings were unseen, was not apt to lose courage when confronted with any other enemy. An experience in following in the trail of an enemy who might flee at one stretch through fifty miles of death-like desert was a good school out of which to come with profound indifference for the ordinary hardships of campaigning. As a rule, the men were more apt, however, to have had experience in warring against white desperados and lawbreakers than against Indians. Some of our best recruits came from Colorado. One, a very large, hawk-eyed man, Benjamin Franklin Daniels, had been marshal of Dodge City, when that pleasing town was probably the toughest abode of civilized man to be found anywhere on the continent. In the course of the exercise of his rather lurid functions as peace officers, he had lost half of one ear, bitten off, it was explained to me. Naturally, he viewed the dangers of battle with philosophic calm. Such a man was, in reality, a veteran even in his first fight, and was a tower of strength to the recruits in his part of the line. With him there came into the regiment a deputy marshal from Cripple Creek, named Sherman Bell. Bell had a hernia, but he was so excellent a man that we decided to take him. I do not think I ever saw greater resolution than Bell displayed throughout the campaign. In Cuba, the great exertions which he was forced to make again and again opened the hernia, and the surgeons insisted that he must return to the United States, but he simply would not go. Then there was little McKinty, the Bronco Buster from Oklahoma, who never had walked a hundred yards if by any possibility he could ride. When McGinty was reproved for his absolute inability to keep step on the drill ground, he responded that he was pretty sure he could keep step on horseback. McGinty's short legs caused him much trouble on the marches, but we had no braver or better man in the fights. One old friend of mine had come from far northern Idaho to join the regiment at San Antonio. He was a hunter named Fred Herrig, an Alsatian by birth. A dozen years before he and I had hunted mountain sheep and deer when laying in the winter stock of meat for my ranch on the Little Missouri, sometimes in the bright fall weather, sometimes in the Arctic bitterness of the early northern winter. He was the most loyal and simple-hearted of men, and he had come to join his old boss and comrade in the bigger hunting which we were to carry on through the tropic midsummer. The temptation is great to go on enumerating man after man who stood preeminent whether as a killer of game, a tamer of horses, or a queller of disorder among his people, or who, mayhap, stood out with a more evil prominence as himself a dangerous man, one given to the taking of life on small provocation, or one who was ready to earn his living outside the law if the occasion demanded it. There was Tall Prophet, the sharpshooter from North Carolina, Sinoe, Saturnine, Fearless, Smith, the bear hunter from Wyoming, and McCann, the Arizona bookkeeper, who had begun life as a buffalo hunter. There was Crockett, the Georgian, who had been an internal revenue officer and had waged perilous war on the rifle-bearing moonshiners. There was Darnell and Wood, of New Mexico, who could literally ride any horses alive. There was Goodwin and Buck Taylor and Armstrong, the ranger, crack shots with rifle or revolver. 
there was many a skilled packer who had led and guarded his trains of laden mules through the indian haunted country surrounding some outposts of civilization there were men who had won fame as rocky mountain stage drivers or who had spent endless days in guiding the slow wagon trains across the grassy plains there were miners who knew every camp from the yukon to leadville and cowpunchers in whose memories were stored the brands carried by the herds from chihuahua to assiniboia there were men who had roped wild steers in the mesquite brush of the nueces and who year in and year out had driven the trail herds northward over desolate wastes and across the fords of shrunken rivers to the fattening grounds of the powder and the yellowstone they were hardened to the scorching heat and bitter cold of the dry plains and pine-clad mountains they were accustomed to sleep in the open while the picketed horses grazed beside them near some shallow reedy pool they had wandered hither and thither across the vast desolation of the wilderness alone or with comrades they had cowered in the shelter of cut banks from the icy blasts of the norther and far out on the midsummer prairies they had known the luxury of lying in the shade of the wagon during the noonday rest they had lived in brush lean-tos for weeks at a time or with only the wagon sheet as an occasional house they had fared hard when exploring the unknown they had fared well on the round trip and they had known the plenty of the log ranch houses where the tables were spread with smoked venison and calf ribs and milk and bread and vegetables from the garden patch such were the men we had as recruits soldiers ready-made as far as concerned their capacity as individual fighters what was necessary was to teach them to act together and to obey orders our special task was to make them ready for action in the shortest possible time we were bound to see fighting and therefore to be with the first expedition that left the united states for we could not tell how long the war would last i had been quite prepared for trouble when it came to enforcing discipline but i was agreeably disappointed there were plenty of hard characters who might by themselves have given trouble and with one or two of whom we did have to take rough measures but the bulk of the men thoroughly understood that without discipline they would be merely a valueless mob and they set themselves hard at work to learn the new duties of course such a regiment in spite of or indeed i might almost say because of the characteristics which made the individual men so exceptionally formidable as soldiers could very readily have been spoiled any weakness in the commander would have ruined it on the other hand the treatise from the standpoint of the martinet and military pedant would have been almost equally fatal from the beginning we started out to secure the essentials of discipline while laying just as little stress as possible on the not essentials the men were singularly quick to respond to any appeal to their intelligence and patriotism the faults they committed were those of ignorance merely when haldeman in announcing dinner to the colonel and the three majors genially remarked if you fellers don't come soon everything will get cold he had no thought of other than a kindly and respectful regard for their welfare and was glad to modify his form of address on being told that it was not what could be described as conventionally military when one of our sentinels who had with much labor learned a manual of arms saluted with great pride as i passed and added with a friendly nod good evening colonel this variation in the accepted formula on such occasions was meant and was accepted as mere friendly interest in both cases the needed instruction was given and received in the same kindly spirit one of the new indian territory recruits after twenty-four hours stay in camp 
during which he had held himself distinctly aloof from the general interest, called on the colonel in his tent and remarked, Well, colonel, I want to shake hands and say we're with you. We didn't know how we would like you fellers at first, but you're all right, and you know your business, and you mean business, and you can count on us every time. That same night, which was hot, mosquitoes were very annoying, and shortly after midnight both the colonel and I came to the doors of our respective tents, which adjoined one another. The sentinel in front was also fighting mosquitoes. As we came out we saw him pitch his gun about ten feet off, and sit down to attack some of the pests that had swarmed up his trousers' legs. Happening to glance in our direction, he nodded pleasantly and, with unabashed and friendly feeling, remarked, Ain't they bad? It was astonishing how soon the men got over these little peculiarities. They speedily grew to recognize the fact that the observance of certain forms was essential to the maintenance of proper discipline. They became scrupulously careful in touching their hats and always came to attention when spoken to. They saw that we did not insist upon the observance of these forms to humiliate them, that we were as anxious to learn our own duties as we were to have them learn theirs, and as scrupulous in paying respect to our superiors as we were in exacting the acknowledgment due our rank from those below us. Moreover, what was very important, they saw that we were careful to look after their interests in every way, and were doing all that was possible to hurry up the equipment and drill of the regiment, so as to get into the war. Rigid guard duty was established at once, and everyone was impressed with the necessity for vigilance and watchfulness. The policing of the camp was likewise attended to with the utmost rigor. As always with new troops, they were at first indifferent to the necessity for cleanliness in camp arrangements, but on this point Colonel Wood brooked no laxity, and in a very little while the hygienic conditions of the camp were as good as those of any regular regiment. Meanwhile, the men were being drilled, on foot at first, with the utmost assiduity. Every night we had officer school, the non-commissioned officers of each troop being given similar schooling by the captain or one of the lieutenants of the troop, and every day we practiced hard, by squad, by troop, by squadron, and battalion. The earnestness and intelligence with which the men went to work rendered the task of instruction much less difficult than would be supposed. It soon grew easy to handle the regiment in all the simpler forms of close and open order. When they had grown so that they could be handled with ease in marching and in the ordinary maneuvers of the drill ground, we began to train them in open order work, skirmishing and firing. Here, their woodcraft and plainscraft, their knowledge of the rifle, helped us very much. Skirmishing they took to naturally, which was fortunate, as practically all our fighting was done in open order. Meanwhile, we were purchasing horses. Judging from what I saw, I do not think that we got heavy enough animals, and of those purchased, certainly a half were nearly unbroken. It was no easy manner to handle them on the picket lines and to provide for feeding and watering, and the efforts to shoe and ride them were at first productive of much vigorous excitement. Of course, those that were wild from the range had to be thrown and tied down before they could be shod. Half the horses of the regiment bucked or possessed some other of the amiable weaknesses incident to horse life on the great ranches, but we had an abundance of men who were utterly unmoved by any anic a horse might commit. Every animal was speedily mastered, though a large number remained to the end mounts upon which an ordinary rider would have felt very uncomfortable. My own horses were purchased for me by a Texas friend, John Moore, with whom I had once hunted packeries on the Nueces. 
I only paid fifty dollars apiece, and the animals were not showy, but they were tough and hardy, and answered my purpose well. Mounted drill with such horses and men bade fair to offer opportunities for excitement, yet it usually went off smoothly enough. Before drilling the men on horseback, they had all been drilled on foot, and having gone at their work with hearty zest, they knew well the simple movements to form any kind of line or column. Wood was busy from morning till night in hurrying the final details of the equipment, and he turned the drill of the men over to me. To drill perfectly needs long practice, but to drill roughly is a thing very easy to learn indeed. We were not always right about our intervals, our lines were somewhat irregular, and our more difficult movements were executed at times in a rather haphazard way. But the essential commands and the essential movements we learned without any difficulty, and the men performed them with great dash. When we put them on horseback, there was, of course, trouble with the horses, but the horsemanship of the riders was consummate. In fact, the men were immensely interested in making their horses perform each evolution with the utmost speed and accuracy, and in forcing each unquiet, vicious brute to get into line and stay in line, whether he would or not. The guidon bearers held their plunging steeds true to the line, no matter what they tried to do, and each wild rider brought his wild horse into his proper place with a dash and ease, which showed the natural cavalryman. In short, from the very beginning, the horseback drills were good fun, and everyone enjoyed them. We marched out through the adjoining country to drill wherever we found open ground, practicing all the different column formations as we went. On the open ground, we threw out the line to one side or the other, and in one position and the other, sometimes at the trot, sometimes at the gallop. As the men grew accustomed to the simple evolutions, we tried them more and more in skirmish drills, practicing them so that they might get accustomed to advance in open order and to skirmish in any country while the horses were held in the rear. Our arms were the regular cavalry carbine, the crag, a splendid weapon, and the revolver. A few carried their favorite Winchesters, using, of course, the new model, which took the government cartridge. We felt very strongly that it would be worse than a waste of time to try to train our men to use the saber, a weapon utterly alien to them. But with the rifle and revolver, they were already thoroughly familiar. Many of my cavalry friends in the past had insisted to me that the revolver was a better weapon than the sword. Among them, Basil Duke, the noted Confederate cavalry leader, and Captain Frank Edwards, whom I had met when elk hunting on the headwaters of the Yellowstone and the Snake. Personally, I knew too little to decide as to the comparative merits of the two arms, but I did know that it was a great deal better to use the arm with which our men were already proficient. They were therefore armed with what might be called their natural weapon, the revolver. As it turned out, we were not used, mounted at all, so that our preparations on this point came to nothing. In a way, I have always regretted this, we thought we should at least be employed as cavalry in the great campaign against Havana in the fall, and from the beginning I began to train my men in shock tactics for use against hostile cavalry. My belief was that the horse was really the weapon with which to strike the first blow. I felt that if my men could be trained to hit their adversaries with their horses, it was a matter of small amount whether at the moment when the onset occurred, sabers, lances, or revolvers were used, while in the subsequent melee, I believe the revolver would outclass cold steel as a weapon. But this is all guesswork, for we never had occasion to try the experiment. It was astonishing what a difference was made by two or three weeks' training. 
the mere thorough performance of guard and police duties helped the men very rapidly to become soldiers the officers studied hard and both officers and men worked hard in the drill field it was of course rough and ready drill but it was very efficient and it was suited to the men who made up the regiment their uniform also suited them in their slouch hats blue flannel shirts brown trousers leggings and boots with handkerchiefs knotted loosely around their necks they looked exactly as a body of cowboy cavalry should look the officers speedily grew to realize that they must not be over familiar with their men and yet that they must care for them in every way the men in return began to acquire those habits of attention to soldierly detail which mean so much in making a regiment above all every man felt and had constantly instilled into him a keen pride of the regiment and a resolute purpose to do his whole duty uncomplainingly and above all to win glory by the way he handled himself in battle End of chapter one part two